0: and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So, this week we're going to talk about the subject of a disciple puts their faith to work in loving service to others. You know, we're going to talk about the famous quotation from James, faith without works is dead. Uh, That is to say, James wants to alert us that if our faith makes no practical difference in our lives, then there's something wrong with our faith. And we need to be aware of that fact as we discern day by day in whatever it is we're called to do, how we are called to put our faith to work. So um, I wondered what I should read to you. I I decided to read from Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 and 9. But I want to tell you that when I wrote the book, that's not the verse I used to guide the discussion. I chose Matthew 25, uh, virtually the whole last part of it. uh, But this is what is said by Jesus. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, Uh, Now, if you remember the entire story, this is the final judgment. Jesus has now come back to reclaim the kingdom, and he separates the sheep from the goats. And he says to the one, come now to the kingdom that you have inherited. And he says to the other, uh, depart from me into utter darkness. Now, I'm going to be talking about this a little later on, but I want to tell you something I discovered as I was... uh, preparing for this that's kind of humorous, you know, when we think of being called before the final judgment, and we think about God as a judge, we automatically sort of think of it like a courtroom, where the judge really has to look at all the evidence, because it's not clear, it's not clear what decision should be made, Uh, so that we sort of hope that's what the final judgment's going to be like for us, don't we? Uh, we hope there's going to be a lot of discussion about, well, he was okay with two of his four children, not so good with the other two of his four children. Uh, he was at least okay with his wife 51% of the time, even though he wasn't a very good husband 49% of the time. Uh, we hope there's going to be this balancing act. But this idea of the sheep and the goats tells us something different. Because you see, it is completely obvious the difference between sheeps and goats. It doesn't take a second of time to decide who's a sheep and who's a goat. I used to go up, uh, I was with a friend of mine last week, I used to go up to near Cisco, Texas, where I was friends with a retired banker, and um, I I would clean, he had some pecan fields that had been overgrown uh, with uh, scrub. And so I would go up there and help clear those pecan groves so the pecan trees could grow. And while I was there, because he had cattle and sheep and goats, I became sort of an expert in cattle, sheep, and goats. he even gave me a calf one time. And I can tell you, it's really obvious. You don't spend a lot of time when you walk into a field wondering who are the sheep and who are the goats. It's 100% clear. And that should tell us that when we come before Jesus... It's not going to be like the trial we hope it will be. He knows exactly what's in our hearts. He knows exactly what we've done. And it is completely clear to him whether we're sheep or goats. Um, And we'll get back to that. So today we're going to kind of be wrapping up. But I think a lot of people who work in discipleship will tell you that there are really three essential parts of the Christian life. And I want you you notice I put prayer first in the last three lessons. There is prayer. That is, there is developing a relationship with God, a deep and intimate relationship with God. How you pray really isn't as important as that you pray. Uh, my relationship with God isn't probably your relationship with God. Uh, so the important thing is to pray. And then, of course, we study the Word of God. Now, here's what I want to hope that you'll be persuaded of by the time it's over. You know, uh, there are several reasons why you might study. One is, I study this because I have some abstract desire to know a little bit about quantum physics. I have no intention of ever putting it to use in any single solitary way, but I'm sort of interested in quarks. Now, That's not the kind of study that a disciple, let's take another study, let's say you go to law school, or you go to medical school, or you go to accounting school, or you go to veterinary school, or you go to whatever kind of school you want to, but you intend to put it to work, don't you? You intend to become a lawyer, become a doctor, become an engineer, become a businessman, if it's business, become a, a, a practitioner of the art. And that's why we read the Bible. Uh, if you're around me a lot, you'll find out that I have almost no tolerance anymore. For uh, I go to these Presbyterian meetings when they want to talk about prelapsarianism and stuff like that. I have almost no tolerance for it anymore because it's unrelated to the question of am I going to act wisely tomorrow and love my neighbor as I love myself. Uh-uh. And those things we need to know are those things that allow us to act wisely and love our neighbors by ourselves. And the purpose for studying scripture is exactly that. Because it is not always clear, as we all know, what is the wise and loving thing to do. It's not always clear at all whether it's the wise and loving thing to do. Oh, then finally, there's action. So I wanted I wasn't smart enough to put the arrow in, but I wanted to put an arrow here because it begins with faith and prayer. It goes in study and it ends in action. So that arrow shows us that this is a continuing process of praying, studying and putting our faith in action. Praying, studying and putting our faith in action as we continue to grow deeper in the Christian life. Um, one thing about any form of Christian action is it leads you somewhere. And that somewhere gives you a new jumping-off place to become even more dedicated a disciple of Christ. So everything that we do, however small, takes us in a direction that has eternal significance. So, oops. So... Disciples commit to spend time praying and studying Scripture and related study for a purpose. Our prayer and our study has a purpose, and the purpose is action. Now, I want to stop. What do I mean by Christian action? Because when we talk a little bit later, you'll think I mean service to the poor, service to the needy, etc., etc., Christian action is simply putting your faith to work in your daily life. However, God allows you to do that so that your Christian action, I have, a, I have a daughter that has a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and she's seven months pregnant with a little girl. Her Christian action, 18 hours a day, has to do with the three lives that she's primarily responsible for, plus her husband. She has little time for anything else except that. Uh, And that's her Christian action, because that's where she is in life. Uh, Take me, for example, I I have the luxury uh, to pray more than I've ever been able to pray in my whole life, because I have extra time on my hands, so I have time to pray in a way that I did not have when I was a 27-year-old young lawyer right at the beginning of a professional career. Uh, So your Christian action is your Christian action pastors and others, we can help you develop your Christian action. We can reflect with you about what it might mean, but only you can decide what it is that you can do in this circumstance. Okay? And our Christian action inevitably involves our mind, our body, and our souls. I I can't tell you how important it is to get this in mind, that the Jews, Greek thought, could separate the soul and the body. In, In Greek Thinking, the, the body's evil and the soul is good, and they're not really very much related except accidentally. The Jews do not have any such concept, okay? For them, we are a psychosomatic unity mind, body, and soul, and that's psycho. You can't separate Chris's spirit from his body, you can't separate Chris's spirit from his emotional life. I'm one thing, one person that one person for academic purposes can be divided, but in life it can never be divided. Uh, so I'm a unity. And by the way, without going into detail, modern science profoundly supports that, uh, that, that insight. Uh, they like to talk about uh, uh, bipolar monism, that is to say we're one thing, and you can separate mind and matter if you want to for analytic purposes, but it's really one thing. That's a little hard concept to get in mind. So we need to view our lives as bringing together our minds, our bodies, and our spirits so that we can be whole. I want to tell you, why do we have so much neurosis and craziness in our society? That's the reason. That's the reason we have fractured the human consciousness by the way we look at the world. And people aren't two things. In other words, I can't really be though I was pretty good at doing this, I can't be whole if I'm one person at the office and one person at home. I can't be whole if I'm one person at church and one person in my private life. I'm whole, or to use the word the Bible uses, I have integrity when I'm one thing. And when I get to that one thing, I find the shalom, the peace, that God wants for me. Okay, so the purpose of Scripture... So notice this verse that we probably reflected on with Ron two weeks ago. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Why did God write the Scriptures? So that we could argue about who's got the right view of the second coming? Was that what God had in mind? This will be fun. I'll write the scriptures and then I'll argue for generations about how to interpret the second coming. Was that what God had in mind? He wrote it so that we might be equipped for every good work. So um, those of you know, I have a real simple method of Bible study. Ron may have said it, but basically there's three questions. What does it say? What stuck out in my mind and what am I going to do about it? You can, write, you can do a very good Bible study with those three questions, and the last question is the one that matters. If I'm just answering the first two questions, and I never get to what am I going to do about it, then I really haven't read the Scriptures the way it was intended, because it was intended that we might be equipped to put it to work in our lives. Okay? So, and by the way, it's okay to be rebuked and corrected. You know, I think most of us think of discipline as a bad thing, rebuke as a bad thing, but it's okay if you've made mistakes in your life. Every other person in the human race has, so why wouldn't you? And rebuke is just simply the way God gives us a course correction. It's a course correction. Uh, and the difference between the wise person and the foolish person is it doesn't take as much pain to get a course correction. Okay. Uh, by the way, Kathy is a very sweet person. It takes very little pain for her to have a course correction, and me, I'm stubborn. It takes a lot of pain for God to give me a course correction. But it's a good thing. It's a good thing. So we don't need to fight it. Okay. Um, Our study should change the way we see the world, because how we see the world will control how we react to the world, will it not? The way I... Perceive the world controls how I react to the world. So Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. Let's say, okay, because of God's mercy, offer your bodies, not offer your mind, not offer your spirit, offer your bodies, offer your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We're gonna Next week, this verse is going to be the key to what we talk about. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I will just tell you, see, our world teaches us the golden rule. He who has the gold rules. (laughs) (laughs) Our, Our world it teaches us the, the gospel of love. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Our world teaches us something about the lions and the lamb, or famous, I think it was Dick Cheney said this, in a world where there are lions and lambs, I'd still rather be the lion. You see, God wants to change the way we look at the world so that we think it's a good thing to be a lamb. We think it's a good thing to act in love in a world of violence. We think it's a good thing... Uh, to give sacrificially of ourselves. We think it's a good thing to do to others what other, we want others to do to us. God wants to change the way we look at the world so that we will change how we behave in the world. So that we won't be just like everyone else in our culture. But we will have a different way of looking at the world. So uh, if we don't Do not put our faith to work. There something is wrong. Okay? I like this little t-shirt that I found on the internet. I didn't buy one because I think it's a bad idea to wear public (coughs) initials of public agencies. But CIA stands for Christian in action. So God wants you to join his secret service. He wants you to become a Christian in action, putting your faith to work. So what are the basic rules? Now we're going to get real. What are the basic rules that might govern how we do this? And I I think to introduce this, I'm going to tell a story. Uh, When I was at Advent, uh, we had a really big international missions program. We'd been given a lot of money to do it. We were all over the world, uh, in Ghana, in the Philippines, in Honduras, and other places, Uh, But we didn't have a very big local missions program and some people said this just isn't right. We're spending all of our money overseas. We're not spending any money locally. We need to change how we behave. And of course we knew that was right. So uh, we picked uh, a helping a school in the poorest and most violent neighborhood in Memphis in the north side it was about 35 minutes to get there. You had to go into a very unsafe neighborhood to get there to an elementary school. And just to let you know, once you got to the elementary school, uh, I felt really good about it. The the principal was probably the best principal I've ever seen in a public school in my life. Uh, The floor, I told people I would eat off the floors. Uh, The children were very respectful uh, of us when we tried to talk to them. It was great. Unfortunately, we couldn't convince more than about four people that this was the truth. And so we struggled for volunteers and we really had couldn't make it work. We couldn't make it work. Um, So about that time, some people were driving by a school that was really very close to where I lived, just a few blocks. I used to be able to see it from the jogging path when I looked down across the lake. And um, it was in a fairly good neighborhood. And they thought to themselves, well, this isn't something they don't need us. And this isn't really going to be helping the poor. one of the ladies did some investigation, and she found out that more than 50%, something like 70% of the kids at that school were on welfare uh, because although the neighborhood it was in was wealthy, the kids were being bused from across Germantown Road from an extremely poor neighborhood and that it really was in need of our help. And so we began a ministry there. And we never lacked volunteers, we never lacked enthusiasm, people, because people would go there, okay? Now, that's a background of what to bring the following. You have to ask, do we have the time, the talents, and the energy to accomplish this mission? Whenever you think, God wants me to do this, you do have to ask, can I do this? Do I have the time to do this? Do I have the energy to do this? Uh, do I have the... Uh, ability to pull it off. Uh, we had a little rule in our church and I think every church had it. When we approved a mission, it had to have the support of more than one person. You could not come to the station and say, I think we should do this. You had to have more than one person come with you to say, we'll help. Uh, because we learned that when people come to the station and say, we really think you should do this, what they're really saying is we think the pastor and the staff should do this. I don't want to do it, but I think the staff should do this. and so we had this rule to prevent that from happening that you had to have support and you had to have people that would say we'll put this together and believe me we had a group of people uh by the way this ministry i've been gone six years now and it's still going on i got a little note about it this week um do 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 are there others i know who would want to be part of this mission Looking around this room, most of us probably have children, grandchildren, business. We have lots of stuff we have to do, and it's impossible for us to be sure we'll be able to be everywhere on time, a a, a specific day of every week for the rest of our lives. And so having others involved allows us to know that if something goes wrong with me, then this ministry is going to continue because someone else will pick up for me. Okay? I think that's why Jesus sent them out two-by-twos. Do we have a plan that will work? You know, um, you'll find out that the businessman is still part of my personality, and I dislike going to ministry meetings where pastors say, God will, God will do this for us. We don't need to plan, God, God will do it for us. Uh, God helps those who help themselves, and God helps those who have a plan. God helps those who have decided not to act foolishly. Uh, God helps those who have been willing to get out there and raise the budget to do it. Um, God helps those who plan ahead. And God helps those who don't plan ahead, but there's only so much you can do with a fool. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, do we have a plan that will work? Uh, Ron will tell you this. We've been very amazed at how well this Third Mill initiative has worked this, this fall. Uh, And for a lot of people in the church, it might seem that this was easy, but I believe the first meeting Ron and I ever went to with Dave West was in 2017, or five years ago. We started planning. And there are various planning documents of various sizes out there, uh, getting down to a little brochure we're working on right now, uh, that reflect a constant judgment about, can we do this? Do we have the money? Do we have the people? Do we have the market? Uh, how, will it work? And the very same skills we would bring to our businesses, we need to bring to God's work. God's work is no less important than our businesses. So if we plan in our businesses, then we should plan in God's work. Uh, and especially a church like this one, which uh, I feel certain has lots of capacity for planning. Um, and is the ministry designed to help others, or is it designed to make me feel good? You know, uh, I forget who I was talking to. Someone in this room, I think, about a little book called When Helping Hurts. How many of you have heard of When Helping Hurts? Yeah, I think it was you. When Helping Hurts was written by some fellows over in South Tennessee, basically to describe how much Christian ministry hurts the people we were designed, it was designed to help. And we did it not because it was the right thing to do, because it made us feel good. So I think I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. Our church had a ministry in Ghana, and I've been to Ghana several times with this ministry, where we installed water treatment facilities, very small water treatment facilities. Uh, The most expensive one cost $5,000 and it drifted down to about $2,000 to install this thing. And uh, we were partners with the Presbyterian Church of Ghana. Uh, And most of them ended up either attached to a church where the church could actually keep it up and run it, or a Presbytery facility where the Presbytery had a, a, a camp where the, camp, the people at the camp could keep it up and facilitate. It. But one day we were in um, uh, Accra, and the church asked us to go out in the country to a village where a very important member of this denomination lived uh, to look at uh, a water problem they had. Now, This was interesting because when we got out there, they they really didn't have a water problem. They had more water than you can imagine because it was in a low, soggy area. Uh, But it did have salt when you went down and drilled a well. Um, But um, the problem was it also was contaminated with bugs because um, it was low and swampy. So we started talking to them about one of our cheaper products, which would do this for them. It would... It would make the water drinkable and no one would ever get sick again. And they just resisted it from the day, from the first moment they resisted it. They were arguing with us all the time. Finally, the little chief of the village says, I want you to come with me and see this. So um, we went to the next village. And then we realized what was wrong. Because a very wealthy American, whose name I won't mention, but you would know the name if I mentioned it, and another wealthy individual from India had gone into a little village of about 300 people, and this is what they had built. They put a stainless, our tanks were plastic, they put a stainless steel tank in. Uh, They put in uh, virtually the same equipment we use, except that it was the most expensive version of what we use. They enclosed it in glass so that you could see through it, and they air-conditioned the glass, uh, the interior, so that people could work in there. They spent $300,000 to build this. So I, in my brain, being a little bit of a businessman, I said, okay, let's say we take this idea and we try to solve a water treatment problem in, in uh, Africa using this plan. What does that cost? And the answer is more than the gross national product of the United States and all of Europe. It, a completely unworkable problem Why was that done? It was done to make some rich guy feel good about himself. That's why it was done. That's why it was done. It was the wrong thing to do. It hurt not just the village that had to keep it up, which by the way they couldn't do, but it hurt every other village that thought that anything that wasn't like that wasn't good enough. Uh, So when we solve problems, uh, we need to think seriously about are we really helping the person or are we Uh, trying to do something to make us feel good. Uh, This is going to be controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway because I believe it's true. Um, For example, it is much better for us to create a situation where we buy toys and invite poor people to come to our church and buy the toys at a discount than it is for us to go and give toys to, to children, thereby humiliating the father and mother of the home. Especially in the Hispanic community where the macho complex is somewhat important. So it would be much better for us to buy the toys and let the parents buy the toys at a discount than for us to give the toys away. Giving the makes me feel good to go to, which I will do in about three weeks with Kathy, to go to some poor person's house and give them the Christmas tree and give them the toys and everything. But it's not the best thing for them. It's not the best thing for them. The best thing for them is to build up their own capacity, build up their own ownership of their own family. And not do it for them. This is a big thing. And it's, believe me, I'm your typical crazy American when I get overseas. It's very hard to discipline yourself to do the right thing and not to do something that makes you feel good or just jump in and throw money at a problem. It, uh, I'm getting off the subject matter, but this is what I learned to be true in Africa. If you ever say, Would you like for us to give you blank, they will always say yes. Always. They're used to saying yes to foreigners. They always say yes. So it's very good to never ask a question that's yes or no. Never ask a yes or no question. We had a young plumber he has got a very successful business now. He was a young guy when we found him. He used to go with us, and well, the thing we liked so much about him was that Michael Asaya would say, Chris, don't do that, <laughs> or don't say that, or don't refer to that, because He knew the culture, he knew the people, and he knew when we were making mistakes. And we learned to do what Michael said. We learned to trust Michael's judgment above our own and to listen to what he said and not to do things that he advised us not to do. Um, So, okay. So, more basic tips. Doing good requires thought. We've already covered that. Start small. Start small. You know, we started with one little project at this elementary school, we basically read with children because we could find women that would do that. But over the years, we built a, a, a greenhouse for them. Some of the men in our church built them a greenhouse. Uh, we built a walking path. Uh, we helped them with all of their, every, all the tests, the standardized tests. They needed. We were proctors for all the standardized tests. Uh, we started small, and then we just added things as the capacity to add the thing existed in our group. Uh, so they're doing more now than they were doing at the beginning. Make it as simple as possible. Uh, I used to have a dear friend. He's still alive, Andy Jordan. He was an engineer. Uh, whenever we were overseas, he would always preach this, Chris, make it as simple as possible. Do not make it complicated. Uh, the best project we ever did, it was at Andy's request. Basically, they had a, a water treatment facility that was quite large in Abatifi. Uh, But uh, the Germans had built it, it went into disrepair, it was all rusted, and they'd stolen most of the equipment. And so we made it into a blue sand uh, unit to to purify the water, and instead of using power except for the pump at the bottom of the well, we used gravity uh, to run the process. Gravity is free, Uh, gravity doesn't break, Uh, you don't have to replace gravity, it's always there. And so Annie's thing is keep it simple. If gravity will do the job, don't use electricity. <laughs> you know, use gravity. Uh, so keep it simple, and try not to do for others what they could do for themselves. Uh, it's hard for Americans. It's hard. I'll give you another one. That when we go overseas and we build houses for people in towns where they are construction workers that are unemployed, is that a great idea? Probably not. Probably better to let the local construction people who are unemployed build the house and have us do something else like help the local construction people. Sometimes to train young people, sometimes you have to break these rules, but think of the principle, you'll be able to put it to work. (laughs) All right. Do, okay, let's see, how do we do? All right, now putting it all together. (laughs) So this kind of puts together all the lessons that we've had Uh, for the last 14 weeks. I want to try to put it together. The first thing is to love God, what, with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our minds. The second is to love our neighbor as ourselves. But I'm going to put one in here, to love yourself. Uh, We haven't done it yet, but Kathy and I teach uh, from Peter Navarro a thing called The Emotionally Healthy Christian. Here's I'll just give you the principle, which turns out in my 30 years of pastoral experience to be 100% true. There are Hundreds of people out there who cannot be the disciple God called them to be because they've got emotional blockages from their childhood that they've never dealt with and which prevents them from being the people that God wants them to be. They have faith, they have hope, and they have love, they just have trouble. Uh, so the second movement, which maybe someday we'll come and teach in this, is to love your, learn to love yourself. And learn, loving yourself means learning to love the fact that you screwed up. learning to accept the fact that you're not perfect, your parents weren't perfect, your children weren't perfect, uh, your government certainly isn't perfect. Uh, Learn to accept the fact that we're broken vessels and we have to learn to love ourselves. Uh, Loving yourself means being self-aware, but uh, love yourself and be able to accept the parts of you that are weak and broken. You know, uh, one of the things God shows us what we should be doing with our lives both by our strengths and what we can do and our weaknesses and what we cannot do. Or as I like to say, as much as I would like to play uh, for the Spurs, (laughs) they have very few 5'8", 142-pound starters. (laughs) So that uh, what you Have been built to be by God, the weaknesses that you have are just as important to God as your strengths. Let's all say that out loud. The weaknesses that I have are just as important to God as my strengths. If I'm too old to get out and work at the KRL every week, I can pray for the KRL, can't I? So the weaknesses I have are just as important in God directing my life as my strengths, and they're just as blessed. They're just as blessed uh, because you couldn't couldn't be and I couldn't be who I am unless I had the strengths and the weaknesses I, in fact, have. Uh, It's taken Kathy a long time to believe that's true, and maybe she doesn't entirely believe that's true. Uh, So um, we have to love our community. You know, the most constant, constant advice of Paul in his letters is love one another. Love the brothers and sisters. Love your church community. Love the people God has brought closest to you, so that' your family, your church, your neighborhood, your coworkers. Uh, learn to love the people closest to you, uh, that you have the capacity to love in your ordinary daily life. Um, I think Kathy would agree with this. I think Kathy believes that God put us together because she needed to learn the virtue of patience, and I irritate her all the time. Uh, uh, And uh, that certainly is true, by the way, of her. Um, uh Uh-oh, what happened here? Do you come back? Okay. Um, So I've got to go back one. So we need to learn to love our Christian community and our friends and family members deeply and hopefully with a forgiving heart. You know, everybody makes mistakes. Pastors make mistakes. Sessions make mistakes. Deacons make mistakes. Women of the church occasionally makes a mistake. Uh, my wife makes mistakes. My children make mistakes. Learning to love our church despite the fact that we're all broken vessels. That's Paul's. And finally, love the world. And finally, for each of us, there's probably something we can do to make the world a better place, however small it might be. And that's really what we've been trying to do in the last 14 weeks. Part of loving the world is sharing your faith when you get the opportunity. It's not the only thing, uh, but it's one of the things we do when we love the world is we share the good news of the gospel with people who need to hear the good news of the gospel. Um, and we do it when the opportunity presents itself. Okay, so this is the last word for this week. More importantly, words alone will not change people in our society. One of the principal elements of postmodernism is a rejection of all truth claims. So arguing that the gospel is true is not effective if people don't believe anything is true. Okay, you've got you to gotta go back one step with them, okay? <laughs> uh, and we, so, um, in other words, postmodernism does not necessarily believe that there is anything called truth to be found. In such a society, people have to see the gospel lived out in an attractive way before they will respond to the truth and live it out in their own lives. In other words, in our situation, because of the really the deep pragmatism and isolationism of our culture, people need to see God's love visibly before they are able to react intellectually. And this is hard, might have hard for people like me, uh, who are teachers by nature. Uh, it's hard to get it in our mind that. It is no longer the case that we can just proclaim the truth and in a Christian culture, people are prepared to hear that truth. Or as I I probably already told you this, you know, my father's era, if he was in New York on business and Billy Graham was in Madison Square Garden and he was the worst sinner in the world, he might go to Madison Square Garden to hear Billy Graham. But believe me, my children's friends, if Billy Graham was at Madison Square Garden, they would go see a rock concert. (laughs) Okay? Uh, so that we can't reach out that way. We are really in a situation very much like the early church was in, where we are in a pagan culture that rejects the gospel and that thinks we're the problem. The the Romans thought the Christians were the problem. Okay? If only we could get rid of the Christians and go back to paganism, we would, once again, our culture would work. Uh, what they could not deny is the love of the Christians and the good deeds that they did. The Christians built the first hospitals, which is why all the secular hospitals in our city have Christian names. <laughs> um, we built the first hospitals. Uh, we did not put our children that we did not want out to die on the rocks, which in pagan culture was common. Okay? Okay. Uh, We did not treat necessarily women as second-class citizens, which was very common in the ancient world. And when people saw that, they were willing to listen to the truth claim that we do this because Jesus is Lord. We do this because Christ rose from the dead. That's why we do this. And we're in exactly the same situation in our culture where there are no words we can say that will pierce our culture's darkness unless we put our money where our mouth is, so to speak, and do the work of light and let people see the light and then react to it, hopefully. And with that, I'll stop and answer any questions. Questions, questions? Remember, stump the chump. Yes?
1: For example, they've been cultivating pop for a long time. So uh, we, have, we have to go in and teach them how to cultivate something else into the poppy. So it takes a little bit of a, of a uh, training uh, process to be able to instill the new concept of producing uh, the crops or making a livelihood with, with new, new aspects. A new way. But it's not always easy, easy to do that. So I was yeah. in Cambodia, and missionaries took me to uh, where they led people to Christ, and they've been farming poppies. And they taught them to plant king fruit. And oh, yeah. they showed me these orchards with these The problem is the farmers. I don't know what the exact monetary thing is. With, let's say. When they grew poppies, they were getting a thousand dollars per bushel. With the king fruit, they were getting fifty cents. That's correct. And so so it was hard for those farmers to not. (coughs) Most of them didn't even know what the poppies were for. When they found out, they realized that
0: those of you don't know, it's it's the raw material from which heroin is made. made. It's very, and I think between the two of you, if we could, you'll find out. Doing good is a process. We may not be able to eradicate 100% of all poppies, but we can maybe get rid of 10% of all poppies and then gradually move those farmers forward. Uh, America, I hate to say it, one of our American propensities is to try to solve all problems immediately and forever and I don't know how that's worked for you with your children, but it's never worked with me and my children. Um, Basically, just do good, and just do a little bit of good, and that'll lead you to more good. I've I've turned around businesses, and I've turned around churches, and here's what I've learned, is if you can create a a godly success, success breeds success. So if you can just get people to take a step, and they win, doing the right thing, they'll take another step doing the right thing. And don't worry about this ultimate goal you've got. Out. I mean, worry about it, but don't think you've got to achieve it tomorrow. Uh, just take the step. Take the step. Thank you for that. Yeah.
1: I, I'd like to tell us a good story, a cheerful story of Americans overseas in the late eight, late 1900s when fly fishing became a, was becoming a much more popular sport than it had been before. When everyone tied his own flies and made his own rods. Two two guys from Oregon, and, and there's a river up there called Umpa or something like that. Uh, got the idea, and and I found out about this because Susan and I were in a place when I first started fly fishing, and there's there's a bundle of flies much smaller than house flies, and I said, "You didn't tie to the man." I said, "You didn't tie these, did you?" He said, "No, women in Ghana did." Well, that got my attention. These two guys went overseas to places like Africa and India. And they built air conditioned, safe, well lit warehouses where women can work with the, the magnifying glass with the light around it. And it's air conditioned and cool, and they can tie mm-hmm. flies all day long. And they have third generation women waiting for those jobs.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, it's a, sort of the teach a person to f- fish, don't give them a fish. Uh, and, you know, once again, it, Americans are. It's hard for us to get capture this that uh, there's a whole thing called micro lending, and sometimes it's better to go in and just loan ten dollars to a shopkeeper in a bazaar in Ghana, uh, who will then be able to um, buy five more something to sell, and that will give her additional income. I'll I'll say sort of. This is not about me because I didn't do it. Andy did it, but. This Michael Isaiah, he was a plumber, a poor, young, 23-year-old plumber. Uh, And uh, we hired him eventually to help us, initially to help us with a project that we were having trouble with in Ghana. And uh, right away we realized, I tell people, if Michael had grown up in a middle-class American family he would have gone to MIT, graduated with an engineering degree, and made half a million dollars a year. Unfortunately he was born poor in Ghana and didn't have the opportunity to go to MIT. Um, so we worked with him, and like I said, he was very good. I, I won, we were working with some crooked Germans, and he told us not to do business with them, and he was right. Uh, and um, Well, Andy eventually loaned him, I forget what the number was, but it enabled him to buy a photocopy machine so that he, in his little office that he had for his plumbing business, he could then be something like a photocopy machine place. And sure enough, and we didn't give him the money. We loaned him the money. He had to pay it back. He paid it back. And we made several other loans to him as he expanded his business into something like Kinko's is here in the United States. And he still had that business. Well, today, Michael is a very wealthy man by the standards of Abitifi uh, and uh, has got a family. And he's a, a very, he's, not a, by the way, he's not a Presbyterian. He's Assemblies of God. But uh, that was the first bridge we had to cover with our church. But basically uh, uh, we helped him, but he did all the work. We just supplied a little bit of money when, and we didn't do it as a gift. We did it as a loan. So that he would have to learn hey, in the real world you pay back loans. Uh, And so if that helps. Any other questions? We have a little more time, five minutes anyway. Well, I hope you'll think about this. It, it really, if you want to read a great book, uh, read When Helping Hurts. It's, now a, it's a Christian classic now. It's just that important a book. Uh, almost, If you take any class on missions and, and seminary, you're going to read that book. Um, and it's a very interesting book, and it doesn't tell you to never give money away. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say never give a person something they need. <laughs> It says, do it wisely and do it only when you have to. Don't do it all the time when you don't have to. Um,
2: yeah. You know, this issue about truth and truth claims. Um, my observation is that right now you can, you can find all kinds of books with the titles Finding Your Own Truth, mm-hmm. you know, Finding Your Own Bliss. We know where that came from. And then somehow that is what our quest is in, in life. So I'm wondering if it's not just a rejection of truth. I think people are still looking for it. But but we're maybe are we not giving the message correctly? Are we and you're and you would say
0: we're not living it, right? I would say... Surely they should mm-hmm. see the action, right? Yeah. Uh, this, what I'm about to say could be controversial, but I had a little, uh, we all know that there's a war going on in, in, in Israel, and I happen to have family, as you might remember, in Israel. And I've been on this little blog site, and basically a lieutenant colonel in the Israeli army kind of tells us what's going on. And yesterday he did a little thing, and he was very depressed. He says, you know, we've been doing all this stuff, and it doesn't get into the media. It just doesn't get in the media. What can we do uh, to get our message across? And I wanted, I I was the least important person on this 700-person call, and so I basically kept my mouth shut, but I want to say there's nothing you can do because, frankly, the BBC already knows the truth and they're not interested in it. Uh, The fact is, this week we had an instance where all over the world there was a press report made that the Israelis bombed a safe haven what they call refugee camp. Now, immediately we think they bombed a place where they told people to go. Well, it was in Jubaiya, which is north of Gaza City. It was in the area everybody has been told to leave. Step one. Step two. The United Nations calls these things camps, but they're not. They're cities. People have lived there forever. They're they're, they're camps because they give aid that they can't give otherwise unless it's a camp. So, B, it wasn't a camp. It was a city. C. They warned the people to get out, and they didn't leave. Well, none of that was reported by the BBC, which took this, and it went worldwide. It's really the spark that all these riots we had. But guess what? Those people at the headquarters of the BBC are really smart people. They know everything I have just told you on day one. They didn't care. (laughs) But they knew on day one, everybody up there is a smart guy. Uh, And that... I felt sorry for Jonathan because he's trying to get a message across, but the fact is, uh, here's another one I will tell you. So I do web searches all the time to find out because they're eventually going to have to go in this hospital that we've heard so much about, and it's going to be difficult if if it's true that there's a big headquarters down below. If I make a search for Israel-Gaza war, I get ABC, NBC, CBS, BBC, and Al Jazeera. I have to go down 20 or so hits to get an Israeli news agency. Now, that's Google at work, in case you'd like to know. (laughs) They're basically saying this is what we want the American people to know, we want them to know that the Israelis are committing war crimes and therefore this is what we're gonna do, we're gonna make it almost impossible for anybody to find out otherwise. And they do that all the time now, about elections, you name it, they do it all the time now. Uh, And it's, they don't care. And once again, I believe the people that run Google are much smarter than I am, so they know what the truth is. They don't care. So this is what we're facing when it comes to spreading the gospel, is we have to find a way to give God's truth into a culture that doesn't care. (laughs) That doesn't care. And they'll only care if somehow love breaks the barrier in their hearts against hearing the truth. I think. I, I I just I. It's the hardest thing to get in our minds because we're so used, particularly those of us of our age, to believing that the truth will win out. But if you look at history, that's really not true. <laughs> I, I do want to yeah, two. Yeah, go ahead. One uh, and yeah. then.
2: Um, he looked at me and he's so, he's a wonderful man. Very learned person. And he said, and he taught here. He taught a class on David, which was great for us in Sunday school. And I took it. It was wonderful. Um, But he said, I don't understand. I really don't understand.
0: What have they done? My daughter-in-law just... It's just shattered. I, I, my best friend, when I practiced at Bracewell and Patterson, a guy named Al Hiller is a reformed Jew. Uh, his wife has been posting on the Internet, and I told her, I called him up and said, you know, if somebody had told me in 1969 that we would see the kind of anti-Semitism we have seen on American college campuses, I would have told them they were crazy. Stunning. I would have Stunning. said, you're crazy, and, but we're seeing it. <laughs> so it must not be that crazy. Can I hold you? And Because I think somebody who never asked the question had their hand up.
3: The truth, and there's all the competition for truth and so where it used to be easier when we were more of a Christian nation is it just harder now because of all these competing demonic gods in the spiritual realm
0: it, it, you've hit on it and we can't go back there's no way back I don't think no peaceful way back uh, so we can't go back uh, we have to find a way forward given the situation we're in Um, And I think if I could, I think we have given, the the enlightenment dream was, is that basically there was a natural morality that was inside of people. And that if we just, and religions could more or less adequately or inadequately describe that natural morality, but if we just let people realize themselves, we would all agree about right and wrong. But the last 300 years, and particularly the last 100 years in America, shows you that's just not true that uh, some people believe in abortion and some people don't and you can't, they won't even talk to each other. Some people believe in pacifism and some people believe in just war and they won't even talk to each other. Uh, in fact, there is no natural morality of the kind that the Enlightenment thought there was that we can all agree on and live together despite our religious differences. So we're going to have to learn to live together despite the differences. I'll just give you one little, here's one little fact. You know, we all hear about the death counts every day. And, of course, it's all women and children. And and virtually nobody between the ages of 25 and 37 is dying. Well, the Israelis are primarily shooting young men between 25 and 37 who have AK-47s in their hands. So you know that those reports just can't be right. And all the press just prints it exactly the way Hamas puts it out without thinking, on the surface, this number can't be right. On on just on the very surface of things, uh, this is a wrong number, Uh, and and they know that. I mean, you're not stupid. They know that. Um, Okay, well, I've given you more than you wanted to think about. Let's go back to the. Let's be sure we can leave here with hope. (laughs) The hope is if we act in love, act in deep love, care and concern for the other person, trying to do the best for the other even if it involves some discomfort for ourselves, uh, then we will make a witness to the world and they will listen to our story about Jesus. That, that was where I would like to leave you today, if I could. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much for this time we've had together. Uh, we are in a dark time. Our culture is dark. Our politics is dark. Our world is dark. There are two unnecessary wars raging right as we speak, and um, young men and young women are dying, Um, and families are being deprived of their loved ones, and there is great suffering in the world. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be beacons of light in that world as you show us uh, a way to the light. And we pray that you would make us beacons of love in that world as you show us ways to love other people. We pray for this class that you would open up the opportunity for each person in some small way uh, to show the world the love that it is so hungry for. Now please bless our church this afternoon uh, and bless the pastors who are preaching as we speak and we'll be preaching at 11. And uh, watch over our country and our city and our state and our nation uh, until we meet again. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.